What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a potential COVID vaccine comes one step closer. Moderna's chief medical officer on the positive results of their human trials and the breathtaking speed. I believe we have an ethical obligation to advance this vaccine as fast as possible, given the unmet need on one hand and given what science enables us to do on the other. We'll go inside the science and find out what's next. The phase three trial is geared towards testing this vaccine and those who need it the most. Plus the other stories that got us talking, Apple's tax break, skipping your doctor visits, and the U.S. punishing Chinese officials for new security laws. There's been so much distrust in the Western world of China and of the Chinese Communist Party but that, it, you know, it just looks as though it's inevitable that this is a, a, um, an issue that you're going to have to face. It's Wednesday, July 15th, 2020, tax day. You had three extra months to file. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Hey, thanks, Becky. Nice to see you back. I hope you had a uh, great time off. Tim Cook is like, you know, someone said, hey, Tim, uh, you remember that Ireland guy they were trying to get $14 billion, $15 billion from you for taxes? Looks like you're not going to have to pay it. And he's like, oh, yeah. Oh, God, that's good. I'm happy. It's uh, OK. So I get to keep that. I mean, what is $14 billion? To Apple. Anyway, the European court is backing the company in the EU's landmark $15 billion tax case. At issue, a 2016 ruling that Ireland had granted illegal tax benefits to Apple. The EU had been seeking to recover $15 billion in unpaid taxes. The EU still has the option to appeal the latest ruling. I don't know what Apple has in cash right now. Do you know, Andrew or, or Becky? I mean, it's. Uh, uh-huh. But he'd be like, you know what, maybe we will uh, put a new food court in uh, now. That, but it's nice. Uh, uh, $15 billion. Something over, two, uh, something over 200 uh, Something over $200 billion. So 15 right nice. Now, just, 15's nice. I'd be happy. Yeah. 15's nice, but not, not what it would mean to a lot of companies, I think, Apple. But it, I think they'll take it. In the last few months, have you pushed off any regular non-COVID doctor's appointments due to the coronavirus? If so, you are far from alone. Wall Street got quarterly results today from insurer and Dow component United Health. The company's earnings per share of $7.12 handily beat estimates. Analysts were expecting $5.28 a share. United Health attributes that big beat to what it calls an unprecedented temporary deferral of care in the company's risk-based businesses. People not going to the doctor. I mean, that's such an interesting reason for why they've seen higher numbers on this. The company does go out of its way to say that it expects the results are going to be offset in the quarters ahead by the assistance measures already taken and the resumption of deferred care. You know, we hadn't really thought about that. You've heard from all the car insurance companies where they've come out and said that they would be giving people a break on this. This is a little bit of a different situation because UNH expects that all of that health care will eventually get picked up. All that stuff that's been deferred will eventually get there. Um, But I, I don't know why this had not occurred to me before, just the idea of all the deferred care. Nobody was going to a doctor for, for a long period of time. In fact, doctors were right. offices were shut and, and wouldn't be seeing anybody except for emergency purposes. 
Right. I don't know. I mean, we could we could go back and look at the insurance company, the the car insurance companies, and others like it. I don't know if they. I don't think they traded similarly because I think they're. I, I, I. You're right. Cars. There's not accidents if people aren't on the road. Um, obviously, if you right. have a, a medical That's issue not, or condition, you're going to have to go get. That. Hopefully, right. we get it taken care of at some point. We're exactly. all health, We're all healthy and young, but mm-hmm. I can think of a lot of things that you wouldn't want to take a three-month break from caring for. I mean, think about that. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of conditions. No, I mean, that's, that's actually where I was on Monday. My daughter had to get surgery because of a, you know, a tube being stuck in her I'm familiar with that, yeah, with and my son, too. It, you know, it's one yeah. that had, it hadn't come out. I mean, I guess it's not absolutely urgent care, think but, of, you know, it's, it was bleeding out of here, so they had to get taken care or, of at some or point soon. mammograms or, I mean, yeah. I, I can, there's a million things I can, I can think of, that, which is one of the arguments that you hear a lot from people that say, okay, you know, we want to crush the virus, but there are other health yeah. concerns that people have that are, that are being neglected because they, they can't get out. President Trump announcing yesterday that he has signed legislation to impose sanctions on China in response to its interference with Hong Kong's autonomy. He also signed an executive order ending the preferential treatment that Hong Kong has long enjoyed. Hong Kong will now be treated the same as mainland China. No special privileges, no special economic treatment and no export of sensitive technologies. This morning, China is responding. Eunice Yoon joins us right now. She has more on this story. And uh, uh, Eunice, I guess we anticipated some sort of a response. Um, Tensions have been rising between the two countries, but I would say that this probably came as a bit of a surprise. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I think China, like you said, uh, we were expecting a response. Uh, China uh, is vowing to retaliate against uh, the U.S., uh, saying that they're going to sanction American individuals and entities in response to this Hong Kong Autonomy Act, which um, under which uh, the U.S. will be sanctioning uh, potentially uh, Chinese officials as well as banks. So, uh, of course, there weren't any specifics um, in the statement from the foreign ministry. But um, on a similar congressional move, uh, Beijing had banned uh, fierce China critics uh, such as uh, Marco Rubio. Now, American companies in Hong Kong are feeling uh, squeezed uh, by all of the politics. In fact, AmCham in Hong Kong said that three quarters are worried about Beijing's new national security law. Forty two percent are pessimistic about the prospects. And of course, this latest move by the U.S., um, uh, stripping the city of its preferential status uh, doesn't necessarily help. Um, as of now, 64% don't plan to leave, though it really depends on your industry. Uh, because, uh, for example, the New York Times today announced that it is relocating its di- digital journalists out of Hong Kong to Seoul. This is about a third of its Hong Kong staff. And the paper said that it was being, quote, prudent to make contingency plans. And then separately, China uh, reacted to President Trump's remarks uh, to reporters at the White House overnight um, about the U.K.'s decision to uh, ban Huawei from taking part in the infrastructure of its 5G networks. So um, President Trump uh, seemed to be quite pleased with that decision. Of course, the foreign ministry backing uh, Huawei's uh, statement uh, saying that 
Uh, this just proves that this is about political manipulation, the ministry said, not national security. And that is a, um, an argument that we've heard quite a bit, um, not only from the government, but from Huawei's lawyers themselves um, as they try to uh, get the CFO um, um, out of uh, her extradition case yeah, in Canada. I, I, and I was thinking about this, and it, it, I, if you weren't on, I was going to bring it up with, uh, with my friend Andrew, uh, who talked about Huawei being a political football for a long time. And so a year ago, or whatever it was, when the U.K. said we were not going to go along with the United States, it seemed like they were intimating that it's not a security problem. So it took this Hong Kong situation uh, to, to get them to decide, oh, now we're mad at China, and it almost looks punitive. So was it a security problem or not, Sorkin? So now the U.K. is on board. But was it, is it because they're mad about the Hong Kong stuff or because it, it really, it, everybody's using it as a political football, it seems like? That's what I don't know. I, to this day, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there are genuine security issues that relate to Huawei, given what you don't know on the back end of what they could do with it potentially in the future. And clearly some of the IP violations and other things that have taken place over time. The question is, is it a, a clear and present danger today? Maybe, but maybe not hard to know, but now being used weird. in this way. And that that's always been the, the push pull on this. But, you know, initially with the U.K., it was kind of a slap in the face. It's like because the United States clearly right. told the U.K. they want they want the, the U.K. support on this Huawei ban. And they just said, nope. you know, what, what you would say, talk to hand. And, and now suddenly suddenly they're on board. Because of uh, because of Hong Kong. Anyway, I want to just weigh in because because I think that this is a problem that a lot of Chinese companies face because uh, whether or not you are directly linked or have um, investors from the government or not, if you're completely private, uh, you face a similar reaction from the U.S. There's been so much distrust um, in the Western world of China and of the Chinese Communist Party, but that it, you know it just looks as though it's inevitable that this is a, a, um, an issue that you're going to have to face. Because at the end of the day, um, I find it very difficult in my reporting here to see, to, 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 to have a Chinese executive who has family here in China to be able to say no to the Communist Party in case, uh, say, President Xi Jinping or somebody in the security apparatus really wants to take a, a good look at, at the data that you have. And that's kind of the issue that, that I think a lot of Chinese companies are facing. Yeah. Eunice, thank you very much. It's good to see you. Next on Squawk Pod, inside the race for a COVID vaccine, Moderna, the small company near the front of the pack, has announced promising results. Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tal Zaks joins us. This vaccine, the way it works, it actually teaches our own body's cells to make that part of the virus. So it uses our own body's machinery, if you will, to present the virus. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. 
More than 130,000 Americans have died in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. According to an NBC News tally, almost one in five new cases of the virus reported around the world are coming from just three states, Texas, Florida, and California. So the hope for a vaccine to stop the spread of this novel virus is high, incredibly high. Earlier this week, Ken Frazier, the CEO of Merck, the world's largest vaccine producer, spoke to Harvard Business School about the difficulty of creating and distributing a vaccine for billions of people. I think when people tell the public that there's going to be a vaccine by the end of 2020, for example, I think they do a grave disservice to the public. At the end of the day, we don't want to rush the vaccine before we've done rigorous science. We've seen in the past, for example, with the swine flu, that that vaccine did more harm than good. So we don't want to, we don't have a great history of introducing vaccines quickly in the middle of a pandemic. So we want to keep that in mind. When we do tell people that a vaccine's coming right away, we allow politicians to actually tell the public not to do the things that the public needs to do, like wear the damn masks, okay? We were so unprepared for this pandemic, it's not even funny on so many levels. That brings us to today's good news from Moderna Therapeutics. We've talked about this company and their approach focused on messenger RNA on several past episodes of Squawk Pod. The biotech company is partnering with the National Institutes of Health on a possible coronavirus vaccine. Moderna says its potential vaccine produced COVID antibodies in all patients tested in an early stage human trial. The production of antibodies is considered an important early step in the vaccine development process. And the side effects experienced by these patients reported were not severe. The results were published yesterday in the New England Journal of Medicine. The vaccine is supposed to begin in late July, a phase three trial, the final one before regulators consider whether it should be available broadly. In the press release, Moderna noted something significant. The company remains on track to be able to deliver approximately 500 million doses per year and possibly up to 1 billion doses per year beginning in 2021. Moderna's chief medical officer, Dr. Talzax, appeared on Squawk Box today with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and CNBC health and science reporter Meg Terrell. Meg kicks us off. Tal, it's good to see you. Tell us about this full data set. We just saw data on about eight of 45 patients, at least in terms of neutralizing antibodies up until this point, now 45 out of 45. How do they affect how you're looking at the likelihood of having a safe and effective vaccine for the coronavirus? Good morning, Meg. Uh, yes, indeed. We saw data that we this vaccine can induce neutralizing antibodies in everybody who got vaccinated. This is, of course, uh, reassuring to us and I think puts us on a positive path towards a large phase three trial with which we hope to demonstrate the safety and efficacy. Let me tell you what it is that we actually saw. So first of all, this study was run by the National Institutes of Health, and I give them a lot of credit for stepping into the fray uh, very early in the pandemic to both run the study and set up all the science that's needed in order to analyze it. And what they've demonstrated now is that with our vaccine, with this mRNA vaccine, we're able at a dose that is pretty well tolerated to demonstrate neutralizing antibodies and these are the antibodies that can actually block the virus's ability to get into the cell. And that's why everybody is so laser focused on this. And at that dose, when we give our vaccine with a prime and a boost, so you start and then a month later you come and give another booster shot, as you often do with vaccines, we can achieve a level of neutralizing antibodies in every participant who got the vaccine. And not only that, if you look at the average levels at which we can achieve these antibodies, it is at or above 
levels that you can see in people who've actually been sick with coronavirus. And the reason that's important is that to the best of our knowledge today, if you've been sick with COVID-19, you're unlikely to get sick again, at least not in the near term future, uh, based on the data that we have today. So if we can get your immune response to recognize that part of the virus that allows your immune response to prevent it from replication at levels that are there or higher, I think it bodes well, we believe, for the potential of this vaccine to ultimately prevent COVID-19 disease. Of course, this is a brand new virus and the understanding of the protection one gets after infection is still evolving. Uh, how would you say, you know, your data really stack up against our understanding, both in terms of neutralizing antibodies and a T-cell response that you saw uh, in participants as well as to how protective this vaccine really could be? That's a great question. And so we don't yet know. And so we're trying to look at the strands of science and what it will teach us. And I think what you can see here is sort of three different strands converging to give us this optimism. The first is that we understand this virus well enough, both from experiments done with this virus, as well as its close cousins, SARS and MERS, that this spike protein is really the critical piece of the virus that you need to block with your immune system. And we've uh, shown that in preclinical models, we and others as well. So that's the first point. The second point is that we know from other studies of transferring plasma from people who've been sick and recovered to people who are now sick, that it is these neutralizing antibodies that are, um, are what you measure to say that indeed that plasma should help somebody get better. So this is now not preventing disease, but actually trying to help somebody who's right now sick from getting worse. And so that's another line of evidence to point at this. I think the final part for us is the fact that we have an understanding of our platform. This is not our first phase one. In fact, it's the ninth positive uh, virus that, that we can show neutralizing activity against. So we've seen with this platform time and again that we are able to induce neutralizing antibodies. And the fact that we can do so at a dose that's safe and well tolerated, and we can do so to a level that's at or above what you see in that convalescent plasma I think is what is so promising in the news today. Question for you about about the practicality of of the way the booster booster works. Uh, you're, you're doing a second a second shot, if you will, four weeks later. And my question is, uh, what's the efficacy for the first four weeks? And then you actually have to get the the patient, if you will, back for the, for for a second dose. Um, typically, some I mean, boosters oftentimes are a year later multi-years later, how's that going to work in terms of the practicality of making this work if, if people have to go in twice in the course of a month? So it's a great question. But, you know, for me, it starts with the basic of immunology. We know that uh, the, the, the more you activate the immune system, the more likely it is to recognize with high quality antibodies, the immunogen, the antigen. In this case, it's this spike protein. And so when you just show a vaccine once, the immune system can recognize it. And indeed, if you look at the doses that we got at the highest dose, uh, at the 250 microgram, just the prime, just that first dose, already is starting to get you that neutralizing activity. So it is possible that with a high enough dose, a single dose would work. However, it is crystal clear from the data that if you come in, and this is not a year later, this is just a few weeks later, if you come in for a second shot, what you're doing is you're waking up your immune system. You're saying, well, hold on, that thing I thought I cleared. No, actually, I didn't. 
And so it revs up the immune system. You boost the levels by about tenfold. And that's very meaningful when we talk about the level of protection and how long we think that protection will last. I think in the context of the unmet medical need that we all see today around us, what we all understand about the severity of getting infected and potentially getting sick with COVID-19, I think asking people to come in a few weeks after the first shot, and this is merely uh, four weeks later, for a booster shot in order to boost the immune response tenfold higher, I think that's a reasonable ask, and I think uh, people will agree that that's a good thing to do. Hey, Tal, I, I wanted to ask about your your idea in terms of how effective this might be for older people at this point. The, the study that you're referring to, the results, we're looking at 45 people ages 18 to 55. Obviously, um, COVID-19 really has a bigger impact on people the older they get. And there have always been questions about how effective vaccines are for older people just because their immune system doesn't respond the way, uh, the same way a younger person's does to, to a vaccination. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that or when you might be able to have an idea about how effective it is on, on people who are 65, 75, 80 years old? It's a great question. Uh, I can tell you that uh, we've, we have had experience with one other vaccine in our platform uh, that demonstrated the same kind of immune indigenicity against older adults. In this particular one, the trial had been amended to include older adults, uh, both uh, aged 55 or 56 to 70 and above 71. Those cohorts have been fully enrolled and will be looking uh, and are looking at those data as they emerge. The phase three trial is geared towards uh, testing this vaccine and those who need it the most, we're going to have people who are both at high risk of infection as well as people, older adults, people with comorbid conditions who are more likely to get sick when they do. I think when we step back and look at the totality of our understanding of the emerging data with this vaccine and what we know about our platform, I feel very confident that indeed we should be able to uh, reach the right levels of an immune response also in the older and more vulnerable population. Dr. Zaks, they you mentioned the cellular response, or Meg mentioned it, the T-cell response. So I have a couple of questions. Number one, how do you measure how robust that is? Number two, um, you, you said that the antibodies prevent, um, prevent the virus from replicating because it can't attach to the host cell because of the spike protein. How does the, uh, what's the, the T-cell response? What does that do? Does it actually attack and kill the virus, or, or what does it do to, uh, to coronavirus? And then my final uh, question is, is there, could you ever induce a, a negative immune response like the virus does that causes that, that, uh, the immune system to overreact? Is that a, a possible side effect of a vaccine where you end up, you know, where people have that cytokine storm, which is why so many uh, people die? Could that ever happen, uh, being induced by, by the vaccine? So that's a great question. It is a theoretical concern, and, and it leads me back to T-cells. We had seen back in the 60s uh, an example or two of that uh, with uh, formalin-inactivated vaccines. Now, this vaccine, the way it works, it actually teaches our own body's cells to make that part of the virus. So it uses our own body's machinery, if you will, to present the virus. And in that way, it very closely mimics what the body would otherwise see. Therefore, I think it's highly unlikely. In fact, we've done some preclinical studies to assure ourselves that that risk, you know, which is theoretical and hasn't been seen, is indeed very low. I think that's where T-cells come in. I think of T-cells in the context of this infectious disease really as the orchestrator of the right kind of an immune response. This, this T-cell part is called the helper T-cells. They're called that because they actually help B-cell make antibodies. And, they, and if you look at the kind of response we have, and that's in, in the New England Journal data, 
you can see that indeed our vaccine elicits the right kind of help. In other words, if you think of your immune responses, it can go the wrong way like we see with uh, allergy, if you will. Um, this is not that kind. This is the right kind of an immune response that actually boosts the right kind of antibodies you're looking to get. And I think it's the ability of this vaccine to both demonstrate uh, the antigen and raise antibodies, but also elicit the right kind of T-cell help is what's underpinning the fact that we can achieve neutralizing antibody titers at a level that I think is as good or better as anything anybody has shown to date with any vaccine. Uh, with a very tolerable safety profile. Is, is that all the, the, the T-cells do? Is, is, is there helper T-cells that help the, the B-cells make antibodies? Or is there another way that, that or, I don't know, are there other white blood cells that act, yeah. T-cells that actually attack the virus itself, not, not by helping B-cells? So, uh, you know, the immune system is a complex system, and I think those T-cells orchestrate a wide variety of responses, right. as okay. you correctly point out. I think the role of T-cells in directly attacking the virus here is less clear than the role of antibodies. I would think of it as sort of a holistic immune response, if you will, that has all components gearing together. I think the data from what people expect monoclonal antibodies will do in convalescent plasma and the data from animal studies so far demonstrate that it is indeed these neutralizing antibodies that are sort of the end game here. They are what we expect scientifically to mediate protection and uh, what we yeah. are measuring as a way to but gauge the effectiveness. You, you, you think that the T cell response? Right. You think the T cell response that you're getting is as good as some of the other the adeno uh, with an adjuvant? It's as strong as that, or not as strong as as competing um, vaccine? I don't think it's possible to look across trials okay. at the T cell response and make that measurement. Okay. These are not right. assays that are as easily understood as the antibody is. That's what I thought. Okay, thanks. Tal, it's Meg Terrell. I, I just want to finally ask you a little bit more about safety. You know, Joe was talking about that really extreme potential reaction, but just about the tolerability that you saw in the trial, you know, after the second uh, dose of the 100 microgram dose, which is the one you are taking into phase three, you saw pretty high rates of fatigue, headache, muscle pain. Um, I know that in the phase two, you are looking at two different dose levels. Do you have the right dose for the phase three? Could you potentially give a lower dose for that second shot? Uh, and, and finally, I, I also just want to combine with that question, um, a question about Merck's CEO's comments yesterday that uh, vaccine developers are doing a, quote, grave disservice by saying we'll have a vaccine this year uh, by potentially creating false hopes. Dose question and how confident are you in getting a vaccine this year and that that's a responsible statement? So let me start maybe with that. Uh, you know, I can't comment to his statement except to say that I believe we have an ethical obligation to advance this vaccine as fast as possible, given the unmet need on one hand and given what science enables us to do on the other. I think it is incumbent upon us to do this in a manner that's responsible, judicious, and accounts for a, a, and the emerging understanding of the safety profile. And I think we're doing that by ensuring that our phase three is a large phase three. It's actually quite a conservative design. We have independent observers by the National Institutes of Health actually as the data safety monitoring board here looking at the events as they emerge. So I feel confident that we're doing it in the right way. Uh, but given the pandemic, we actually expect to see enough events that the trial should read out uh, soon. Now, when will that happen? I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't really comment. You asked me about the safety profile, and I think it's important to understand what it is we're talking about here. When we talk about vaccine reactogenicity, actually, these are all expected events, okay? They are collected in a manner that FDA had years ago put guidance to say, this is what you should expect to see in a vaccine, and this is how you measure it. 
And so what we've done here is look at that guidance and, in fact, ask the people who were vaccinated, well, do you see any of these symptoms and how bad is it and what do you feel? And the answers are pretty much as we would expect, I'd say, with one interesting twist. So what do I mean by that? Well, the adverse reactions are either local injection site pain, it hurts a little bit, or you get some flu-like symptoms. So like you would get with a common cold, uh, you know, and, and the important thing here is that these adverse events are expected and they are transient. They're self-resolved. So you have a day, maximum two, of feeling headache, fatigue, myalgia. I'm not making light of these symptoms. I'm just trying to put that in context of what we hope these symptoms are indicative of, which is activating your immune system specifically and educating it so that if you then get exposed to the SARS-CoV-2, you won't get sick. And that's a much worse illness mm-hmm. than what we see with these expected flu-like symptoms for a day. The interesting thing and the reason why I feel good about it is that the adverse event profile is worse after the second dose. And that tells you that you're actually teaching the immune system to recognize something specific. Right. Well, thank you so much for being here this morning. We look forward to hearing the next update from you guys. Thanks again. Thank you, Meg. Squawk Pot will be right back. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Share us with a friend. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.